Philippians chapter 2. We'll read verses 14 and 15 this morning. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Let's go to the Lord again this morning together. Father, we thank you for your word and for the power of your spirit living within us who has given us the Word of God. I pray that we might be pliable as clay in the potter's hand this morning. May we understand the instruction that is given to us as your people, and may we be submissive to the working of your Spirit using the Word of God in each of our lives. We recognize that we are in need of continued understanding and discernment and wisdom of your spirit and father as well that we must remain aware of the work that you have determined to do as we've seen throughout this scripture and many others we thank you that you are faithful to this work so lord may we faithfully submit ourselves unto you as you complete this work and fulfill your purpose in and through our lives as your people that you might receive the glory and honor In all things, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. During the time of our study of verses 12 and 13 of this chapter, we observed four truths concerning Paul's exhortation for the Philippian church to work out their salvation, as he states in verse 13. And we began by considering first, I want to work through these quickly, the expectation of this salvation, just in review this morning. In verse 12, we read the first part of that verse. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So Paul had complimented the Philippians concerning their obedience and how that it was not based on others watching them or what others thought of them or their concern of the perception of their obedience, but their faithfulness was to the Lord and to His truth. And we see that as Paul stated when he said, ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And so obviously the testimony of these Philippian believers was that they were in obedience to the gospel, in the fellowship of the gospel. They were continuing in that fellowship, as Paul speaks of in the previous uh, verses of this epistle. Second, we looked at the responsibility of this salvation in verse 12. Paul went on to say, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this command for the believers to work out your own salvation is a command that is based on the provision of God's completed work in Christ. Paul's statement concerning fear and trembling is a charge for the Philippians, as we have discovered, a charge for them to acknowledge the seriousness of this salvific work and also the gravity of the responsibility that they had been given to submit to the Lord's continued work in their lives. Third, we saw in verse 13 the confidence of this salvation. Verse 13 states, For it is God which worketh in you. And this verse, of course, provides the explanation or the basis for the demand in verse 12. And it is in this first part of the statement of verse 13 that we understand how that we can face such a demand to work out our salvation. 
as I previously have mentioned, there could be no greater confidence in the life of the child of God than to know that the God who makes the demand for His children to work out this salvation is the same God who is committed to perfect the work of salvation within His children. And then fourth, we looked at the purpose of this salvation. In verse 13, Paul went on to say, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So work out your own salvation, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God's glory is the end result of this work which He has begun and He is perfecting in all of His children. I've often stated to you, the end of all things is the glory of God. God works all things after the counsel of His will to His pleasure and for His glory. And for this reason, God has not left such an important eternal work up to us, but it is He who is faithfully working in us, giving us both the desire to do His will, and it is He who enables us by His indwelling Spirit to do His will. And so when Paul wrote and said, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure, he is saying that it is this God that has called you to work out your own salvation, which puts within you the desire and also enables you to be obedient to that which He has commanded. And so we must be aware, consistently aware, that we have a tremendous responsibility, a grave responsibility to submit ourselves in obedience to the Lord and His Word and His work. But we also must be aware that the only way this work can be done in our lives and can be fulfilled in our lives is that we are totally resting in the sufficiency of the One who has commanded us to obey. Because we are not capable in and of our own selves. In fact, in honesty, and this is something that we may not like to admit or confess, but it's the truth nonetheless. Left to ourselves, we don't want to obey. We do not want to submit to God of our own being. It is God both, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. So when Paul makes that statement, we must recognize he's not just saying, okay, the Lord enables you to do what you really want to do. He's saying, no. The only reason you want to be obedient, the only reason you want to submit, the only reason you want righteousness to be realized in and through your life is because God has put that desire in you. Look, I, I, I will be honest with you. I'm thankful for the work that God has done and continues to do in my life. But one of the most comforting things, one of the most comforting things I believe in the life of the child of God is the realization that there is within them this insatiable desire for righteousness to be demonstrated and manifested, to know the Lord in His righteousness. And it's something that we do not prompt, that we do not, uh, uh, we do not uh, manufacture. It is that which God has put within us. And here's why I say it's one of the most comforting things. Because we still live in a flesh that is desperately wicked. And though our desire is to be pleasing to the Lord for those who've been redeemed, let me ask this question to you, very practically speaking. How often have you failed in working out the salvation? How often have you failed in walking in righteousness? How often do you fail in obedience and submission to the Lord and His Word? And I would say... It's a, it, the number is innumerable. 
Because it's something that we do so frequently because we are fallen being, fallen creatures. However, here is the beauty and the, the comfort that even when we fail, even when we sin, even when we are falling short in those moments of the glory of God being realized and demonstrated through our lives as believers, there is still within us this deep-rooted desire that we long after righteousness. And we are not content. We are not satisfied unless we are submitted unto the Lord. And it is the Lord working that in us, this will and this desire that is present. So it is in and through the church we're told that God has determined to, to receive and to manifest His glory. In Ephesians three twenty and 21, we saw in our study last week, Paul said, Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So God receives His glory through His church. He manifests His glory through His church as Christ lives in us. So the responsibility for us to work out this salvation is not simply a generic command to do right. It's not as though Paul just is writing this epistle and he says, by the way, you should always do right. That's not what he's simply saying. I mean, that is the truth, the nuts and bolts, if you will, of the command, I guess you could say. But there's so much more to it than just a generic approach or a casual approach to this command to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul provides instruction concerning the details of this command and the evidence present within the lives of those in whom this salvation is worked out. In other words, as we find consistently within the Scriptures, the commands that are provided are done so based upon the position God has already provided us and then followed by an explanation of what this looks like practically within those who submit their lives unto the Lord. We see this truth demonstrated within the previous two verses of this chapter, in which the command is given again to work out your own salvation based on the foundational truth. Here's the command. Work out your own salvation. It's a clear-cut command. We are commanded to do this. But then there is a foundational truth and basis from which this command is actually given, as Paul explains, for it is God which worketh in you. And then followed by these verses of our text this morning, in which the practical explanation and evidence of such a worked-out salvation is present. So here's the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the basis for the command, the position, for it is God which is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, and then the explanation of what this looks like when it is being worked out. First, let's note in verse 14 together the spirit of biblical obedience. He says in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Biblical obedience is not merely doing what is commanded, but it is to do that which God has commanded in a spirit of humility in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Murmurings means complaining and grumbling. Disputings means reasoning and thought. And this command is not to be understood as though Paul is stating that believers are to act in a thoughtless manner. That is not what he's saying at all. Or without giving the proper consideration to the instruction of Scripture. 
Rather, this is a command to do that which God has instructed without doubtful questions or questioning. The same Greek word translated disputings in our text is translated doubting in Paul's epistle to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8 when he said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. A few weeks back I mentioned to you Micah's explanation of that which God requires of man in Micah 6.8 when he said, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The spirit in which one acts is as important, if not more important, than the action itself. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Years ago, I I, I came to this conclusion, having three children, and I've told you this before. When my children were young, in their years of formation, if you will, I could make them do things that I told them to do. I could make them not do things <laughs> or keep them from doing things I did not want them to do sometimes. But one thing is certain, and I came to realize this, even if I made them do what I wanted them to do, I could never make them want to do what I told them to do. I could not change their heart. I could discipline, I could instruct, I could teach, and I could actually, at those, and when they were younger, of course, I could instruct, teach, and discipline them in such a manner that they would do what I told them to do, or there would be obvious consequence, and eventually, they would end up doing what I told them to do because I had that ability to oversee and to instruct and teach and to discipline in such a manner to cause them to do such. But I could never really get to their heart and make them desire to be obedient. I could not make them desire this other than just teaching, instructing, and discipline. But I could not change their sinful nature. And so we must recognize that just because an act is followed, a command is given and one follows that command does not mean that that is an example of biblical obedience. We see examples of this truth throughout Scripture. The the people in Malachi's day were actively doing their religious duties, and yet the Lord rejected their polluted worship of Him. In Malachi 1.10 we're told, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. Now listen to what the Lord says to the people. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. So he says, I'm not pleased with you at all, and I will not accept your offerings. And yet they were busily doing, busily performing, continuing to do their religious duties, Second, in the Gospels, Jesus referred to the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, as outwardly clean, yet inwardly filthy and corrupt. In Matthew 23, 27 and 28, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. 
Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I don't know how it could be much clearer than that. He's saying, look, you look good. Jesus is saying to them, before men, you look good. You look righteous. You look holy. You look sanctified. You look, you are playing the part well. He said, however, within your heart is iniquity and death and filth. Number three, another example. And there's many more, of course, but Jesus referenced Isaiah's prophecy concerning the people of his day as those who outwardly praised God yet had hearts of indifference towards the Lord. In Isaiah 57, or I'm sorry, Matthew 15, 7 and 8, he said, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah, or Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's saying, All the outward signs are there, everything looking like that they're in obedience, that they love the Lord, that they're following God, that they're doing all the outward actions. Everything looks good, just like those Pharisees that Jesus had referenced previously we read. And then he says, their heart is far from me. And he's referencing Isaiah's prophecy. So to do all things without murmurings and disputings as is commanded here, this is what it looks like. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the responsibility. This is the command. But the basis for the command again, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then how this looks. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. This is what it looks like to work out your salvation in this respect of what Paul is writing. And he's saying that we are to have a submissive spirit. When he's, he's not just saying, keep your mouth shut. You have to understand this. See, we would view this and say, okay, so I don't like this. I'm in disagreement with this, but you know what? I just got to keep my mouth shut. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying our hearts are not to be in that position. Our attitude is not to be such. So to do all things without murmurings and disputings is to do all things in the spirit and attitude of humility and submission unto the Lord and His Word. And let us be reminded that the Lord is, after all, not interested in the outward appearance but the heart. In Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, we read, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. As I previously have mentioned in our study of the previous verses of this study in Philippians chapter 2, as the Lord Jesus humbled himself and was exalted by the Father, so Simon Peter instructs believers to humble themselves, that God might exalt us in his time. First Peter 5, 5-7. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So we are to walk humbly with our God. And, and for this is that which God demands. Biblically defined obedience is more than outward compliance to instruction. Biblically defined obedience is a spirit of humility and submission to God, which results in conformity to the Lord and His Word. So we must all keep ourselves in check here and examine ourselves regularly. Listen, it is easy. I, 
generally speaking, it is easy for you to follow a list of do's and don'ts and just make sure that no one sees you acting contrary to the list. That is relatively easy. I'm not saying we would, anyone could do that perfectly, but it would be relatively easy. But let me tell you what's much harder is to consistently keep yourself examined and in check concerning your spirit and attitude which motivates or drives your actions. Even those often as the Pharisees, they would be in compliance with the law, but yet there was always selfish motive behind it. It was always to exalt themselves. It was always that they appeared righteous before men, that they looked the part, that others would respect them because of the way they behaved, because of the manner in which they spoke, because of what they did, and because of their, really, hypocrisy. But yet the Lord saw right through that, of course, and he rebukes them and says that you're as wide as sepulchers. Yeah, you look good on the outside. And, and, and notice, of course, obviously the, the example being given there is that of a grave, of a tomb. And he's saying, you can, and even today we see this being done. In, in memorials made unto people, headstones, in, in all of the... Uh, the buildings, of course, and such in which people are buried and the ground in which people are buried, you will see that they are very ornate. And they are, they're, they're made to appear as though they are attractive, but we cannot forget that within all of that which that represents is just death, decay, filth, that which is corrupt this flesh and these bones that rot. And so, no matter how much you may try to dress up death, it's death nonetheless. And Jesus is saying here, of course, to those Pharisees and the religious people of his day and the leaders, he's saying, you look good, yeah, you've, you have an ornate appearance, but within is decay and destruction and that which is corrupt, wicked, filth. So we have to recognize that the spirit of biblical obedience and doing all things without murmurings and disputings, of course, is what's really being referenced and the emphasis of what Paul is saying. It's not, again, simply an outward action, but it's an inward spirit, an attitude of submission to the Lord. Then second, we see the result of this biblical obedience in verses or in verse 15. In verse 14, again, he says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Then verse 15, That or so that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So he says, this is the command. This is what it looks like that when you work out your salvation, submit it to the Lord who is working in you, then your spirit and attitude will be that, continue to allow it to be that, which is not in, in, in disputes or doubtful questioning of God and his truth, but rather a, a spirit of humility before the Lord. And here's, he says, so that, here's the purpose behind that, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, and all this is in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, and you, God has placed you as lights within this wicked and perverse, dark world. The colon at the end of verse 14 is important, in, as we read in, in the Scriptures here. 
As I've previously explained to you, a colon is used in English grammar to join two independent clauses or sentences in which the second sentence following the colon is explanatory of the first. And so when we read verse 15, we understand it again to be stating, as I read a moment ago, or emphasized, do all things without murmurings and disputings, verse 15, so that. This is explaining the reason for the previous statement. When we humbly submit to the instruction within verse 14, which is an explanation of what it looks like, again, for us to work out this salvation, which God is working in us, then it produces the following results. What's more, it is, it's only because of that which God has worked in us that any part of this ex- exhortation that is provided can even be worked out in our lives, as we will see by the reference of the Scriptures referring to the positional truth of this eternal work which God has promised to reveal in eternity. God has declared that He will make us blameless, harmless, without rebuke, and in doing so, God requires that we live out this work He has done as we are commanded. In verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke. Blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? It means to be faultless. And it carries the sense of being unblameable. The context of Paul's charge in verse 14 is explained in verse 15. And that's what I was explaining a moment ago. While we know that the Lord will present us faultless and blameless in eternity. And I'll give you some references to show you that. 1 Corinthians 1.8, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Jude verse 24, the context of Paul's statement in this passage refers to us living our lives in a way in which no blame can be legitimately placed upon us. So let us understand, again, and this command is based on that which God is doing and has done. It's not we are, we are doing this ourselves, but yet the context here is not in reference to what God has done, it's our responsibility to respond to that positional work of God, that eternal work of God, and now living our lives presently in such a fashion and manner that it is without blame. Harmless. Harmless means pure and innocent. The matter of an accusation sticking is one thing Yet in this statement, Paul is dealing with that which is below the surface. And this is very important. Again, it's not only the outward action, but it's the inward spirit and attitude. When he says blameless, again, this is talking about being faultless. But this, of course, is, again, the connotation is unblameable. So it's a sense of no one being able to legitimately place blame on us, but yet harmless is pure and innocent. While it still carries the same truth as the previous statement, it, Paul is kind of going a little deeper now. And he's saying harmless doesn't just mean that no one has seen you, but now it's that we are pure and innocent in our spirit and attitude and our actions before the Lord. And obviously, I confess to you, and as you, each of you, if you're honest, will as well, we fell in this. I mean, it, it's an obvious truth. There's not one of us who can stand up and say, I am pure and innocent. In ourselves, we can't say that. But yet God is saying, live in a pure and innocent manner. Not only that others, you live in a manner where no one can place blame upon you outwardly, but we are to live in such a manner in which we are living purely and and in righteousness before the Lord. And again, remember, all of this goes back to what Paul has stated previously when he says that 
not as though you've obeyed only in my presence. Remember that? But now much more in my absence. Now that's just Paul himself speaking to the Philippian church, saying your obedience isn't hinged on what I see or because I am present and you want to impress me. But might I say to you, our obedience and submission to the Lord is to be unto the Lord. And we are to walk in purity and holiness before the Lord. Whether someone sees or whether they do not. Whether there are accusations that are trying to, or accusations which are, are uh, intended to be placed upon us or not. We are to live purely and holy before the Lord. And again, I confess to you that I fell in this. But I also know that I stand before a group of people who also fell just as much as I fell in this. That we find ourselves guilty of this very truth. But that's not an excuse for us to not live in purity and live in righteousness. Again, I, let, me, let me insert this here because I believe it's important that, that we remember that considering these truths... And, and our own fault and failure in living this out as we are equipped to. Let me put it that way. Because God has equipped us to live in purity and righteousness, but we still fail in that regardless. And so when we fail to live as God has equipped us to live and called us to live, I, I am constantly reminded of how thankful I am to be and how grateful as well you should be that the Lord loves us, if I can use this terminology for the sake of making the point, God loves us too much to allow us to continue in such a manner. So there is this correction and this instruction that God is constantly providing. Living in this purity is what Paul meant when he wrote regarding the responsibility of believers to walk worthy of the call of God, to work, walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk worthy of God. In Ephesians 4.1, Colossians 1.10, and 1 Thessalonians 2.12. So again, this, this command is not some abstract command that is given for you to attempt to do these things. It's based on truth that's already established in Scripture that God has equipped us, He has positioned us, that we can be obedient and that we can walk accordingly. Then third, see, He says, without rebuke. And to be without rebuke means without blemish. Once again, this exhortation is not concerning the Lord presenting us without spot or blemish unto himself in eternity, which he, Paul references in Ephesians 5.27, but rather it is a command for us to live out this truth of this position in this present life. We are to live our lives without blemish because he will present us without blemish. And, and, and once again, let me pause because this is important for you to recognize and there's good news in this. There is not one of us, here's the bad news, there's not one of us who is without blemish. We are blemished. We are marred beings. We are, we are marred inherently by sin. We are marred creatures, marred image bearers of God. But we are also marked by actual sins. In other words, we are marred because we are of Adam's race, but we are marked by our own fault and our own sins. But here's the good news. As this is an ongoing work throughout our present lives, there is a day which will 
be realized in which we will step into eternity and we will be without blemish, without spot. But that has nothing to do with what we are doing. It has to do with what God has done and what he has perfected and who he has made us to be in Christ. But understanding these truths, this is where we understand what Paul previously stated, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. I know that God will present me blameless and righteous and holy because I am in his son Jesus Christ. But knowing that truth, that eternal truth, creates within me or puts within me and cultivates within me a desire for that to be realized in this present life as much as is possible. So this is what Paul is teaching us. And hence, too, we see a distinction between people who just claim to love the Lord or claim to know Christ and those who truly have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in this redemptive work. Because those who are redeemed, there is a desire within for the eternal glory of God to be realized as much as is possible in this present world, in this present life. Again, for those who have any spiritual maturity to them at all, they recognize that this salvation is not simply a get a free out of jail, out of hell, out of lake of fire card or certificate, a pass. In other words, this salvific work of Christ is not about us. It, it's about the glory of God. And if we understand that truly, then would we not desire for that glory which is revealed in eternity to be revealed now? Progressively being worked out? Verse 15, he goes on to say, In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. God will ultimately display his grace and glory through those he has redeemed in perfecting this work of salvation in eternity. However, he has chosen to display in time this work through his church. It is as his lights, the scripture says, that we shine in a world that dwells in spiritual darkness, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. The statement in the midst of means in the middle of. The implication, again, is that we are to live out these truths before those who are of this world filled with spiritual darkness. Paul uses two adjectives to describe the world in which we are to shine as lights. He said crooked, which means harsh and unjust, and then perverse, which is pervert, or to make crooked. He goes on to say, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. If you recall with me in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples and all those who would become his disciples concerning this very matter of being in the world. In John 17, 14 through 21, we read, I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. 
Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Notice in verse 15, Jesus said, I pray not thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. God preserving those who are in Christ from the wickedness in which we live among and in the middle of such wickedness and in a dark and perverse, a perverted world. You know, I'm somewhat astounded how the church today, and this has, I think, a lot to do with conflating Christianity and holiness and righteousness with morality. But the world, the church today, seems to be offended when the world acts in a perverse manner. Listen, I am not offended. I'm offended at unrighteousness, generally speaking, of course. But what I'm saying to you is I expect an unbeliever to act like an unbeliever. I don't expect them to act like one who's come to faith in Christ. And through morality, what has happened, the church has tried to push morality onto an immoral world. Listen, let me, let me clarify this for you. The world does not need your morality. An unbeliever does not need a revival of morality. The unbeliever needs the gospel. And we are not shining as lights of morality. We are shining as the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God. You say, well, how do you distinguish between the two? Well, people within the church today attempt or seemingly have this desire to see people act in a moral way and think that if they are to do so, then the world is just such a much better place. But the truth of the matter is you can be as moral as you want to be all day long and still be just as filthy and corrupt and unrighteous and in need of salvation. And so as lights of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not preaching morality and we should not expect for a world that is in unbelief and in spiritual darkness to act as though they are believers in Jesus Christ. But the same coin other side... Why would we not expect for those who are believers in Jesus Christ to live as the lights which God has called us to be in the midst of a dark world? So no, I do not expect an unbeliever to act like a believer. But I do believe, obviously, and expect believers to act according to the Scriptures. If you profess Jesus... If you profess salvation, then there should be evidence in your life of such a profession. And the evidence is not a moment, a date that you've wrote in the cover of your Bible where you've made such a profession. But the evidence that you are working out and God is working in, and therefore you work out that which God has worked in, is that now you are lights in a perverse and dark, spiritually dead world. 
Now, will a believer who's living in righteous live morally? Well, of course. And that's why I said the question could be asked, well, how do you distinguish between the two? Well, the distinction is simply this. Do you recall with me in the Gospels where the young man comes to Jesus? And what does he say? I've kept all the law. Now, first of all, he hadn't kept all the law, okay? Because he'd sinned. But yet his declaration is, I've done all of this. But here's what he lacked. He lacked, and he says, you lack this one thing. And then he mentions three things, kind of interesting. But yet the one thing he lacked was faith in Christ, belief in Christ, who he actually is, therefore not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point being, as the Pharisees, as we saw, they could live lives that appeared righteous or moral or holy, if you will, doing right, looking right, but the spirit and attitude of their heart was indifferent toward God, and they had no desire to humble themselves before God. They had no desire to submit themselves unto the Lord. And again, we we emphasize this truth, it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do. If you have a desire for righteousness and holiness and to live your life as a light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, It is only because God has put that in you and worked that in you. But as a believer, then we understand the significance of the responsibility to live accordingly. So it's interesting, in his high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus does not pray that the Father remove them out of the world. That's kind of what we desire, isn't it? It's like we kind of want to be isolated from this world and the filth and the ungodliness and the holiness. And we're like, we want to be, we don't want... We don't want to be involved, of course not involved in it like practicing, but I mean, we don't even want to be engaged at all in, with those who are in, living in such a manner. But that's exactly what God's called us to be. And if he is working in us, then we are to work this out and be lights. And by the way, we are to be lights that aren't murmuring and questioning God's purpose and plan for us to be his light in this world. This salvation, when worked out in spirit of obedience and humility, will result in our lives as conduits in which the grace and the glory of God will be manifested. God has placed us as His light in, and His light in us, as that we might be His lights in a world, because Christ Himself is the light of the world, as we are aware, and how He lives in us, and it is the light of His life which is to shine in and through us. To be his light in the midst of a world filled with spiritual darkness is not only a tremendous responsibility, but it's also a blessed privilege. We've been given stewardship of the gospel, and it is a privilege for God to demonstrate his glory in and through us as his chosen people among a world that dwells in spiritual darkness. This is what this salvation looks like when it is worked out in a spirit of humility and submission to the God who is faithfully working in us according to His good pleasure. The church is in continual need of being reformed. The Scripture tells us that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Do you understand what that's saying? We are being reformed, reshapen to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's a continual need. The world does not need to be reformed in that respect. The world needs to be redeemed. They need to be regenerated. 
We need, to, we need to stop the nonsense of trying to reform an unregenerate people. We need to evangelize an unregenerate people, but we ourselves continually must understand the necessity to be reformed. Because there's plenty of me that is shading the light that is within me. And what is necessary is that I be reformed so that light is not hindered in any way within and through my life. And all this is what? For God's glory. For the exaltation of Christ. So may we be faithful stewards of the gospel as His lights, not trying to reform an unregenerate world, but taking the gospel which is the redemption that they so desperately need. But all the while, we must continually be reformed, being conformed to the image of Christ, that this light of Christ not be hindered, not be darkened within us, not be shaded within us. Again, I say to you, and you should understand more so now, the statement I previously made last week and again this morning. One of the greatest comforts in all of this is that it is God which is working in us. Both to desire and to live out this salvation that is pleasing unto Him. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we are...